Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, president of Seamless Docs Federal, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. All right, Danny, we have a series of special episodes that we're doing in partnership with the Partnership for Public Service. Yes, and we've talked before on the podcast about this moment, the Service for America Awards that happens every year, and it's this... It's the Oscars. The Oscars of government service, service. and I think I've told the story several times how... um, how, how you go there, and it's a long evening, but it's an amazingly emotional evening right. because the people that win in their stories are just very inspirational, and at the end of the day, you realize these are, these are public servants doing government work, but also having extraordinary impact on people's lives, and the way the award ceremony works, they really help you really see it viscerally through video and through testimonial, and you walk away just feeling proud. Um, anyway, so... The good news is that we have some of the finalists. The finalists, yeah. These are the people who, you know, it's a very complicated process, and we'll, we'll have Max Steyer on. He can tell us a little bit about why the, partner, why the partnership does it and how they do it. And, um, but it's a, it suffice to say, all the people we're going to talk to are just incredible, and uh, they've done amazing work, and they've gone through a pretty substantial process to get to this point. Yeah, and so it's, we're really honored that the Partnership for Public Service said, let's team up with the Gov Actually crew. Let's have these people tell their stories on the podcast. And so, uh, so we'll be looking forward to podcasts where we highlight these amazing accomplishments of these government workers. Yeah, this is the actual work of government at, uh, at the frontline level, at a fundamental level. These are the, the best of the amazing group of great people who are out there. So uh, it's exciting. And then uh, hopefully inspire people to get a little curious and look at past winners because, I mean... I know at the end of the Sammys, there's generally not a dry eye in the bunch because someone has literally worked to cure cancer or, you know, save someone's life or... Oh, yeah. It was just made, like, impacted. And, 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 and sometimes the Sammys, they'll bring the people out yeah. onto the stage whose lives were saved or impacted in a very positive way. Um, it really kind of, it's an important reflection. I've thought, like, who should see this? Obviously, I wish more of, of the country would see it. But um, civic students and public policy schools and universities and people that are thinking about their career path and whether they're going to go into public service or not, you know, to learn about these stories and realize that there's a world in which you can have that type of impact, I think would have, would have, have a real effect on, on, on decisions people make in terms of whether to pursue careers in public service, not just in addition to what their perception is of government service. Yeah, I think I think there are a lot of there are a lot of channels in which you can turn to to hear about what's wrong or even what could be better. This is an example. These are examples of what's absolutely right with public service. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so we'll look forward to our interviews. Hey, we're here with one of my absolute favorite people in the world. Yay! So, yeah, someone <laughs> who should have been on the podcast a long time. Yeah, ago. but I think I think you know you have to build. Right? I mean, because we were ready. figuring out everything. And I, I would have done it earlier. You never asked me. No, no, that's true. But I don't think no, we were ready. We, needed, we weren't ready. We weren't because we knew that this was going to be 
you're going to give us, you're going to like extract as much back out of us. You are setting me up for failure here. But maybe we should introduce. Oh, right. People don't know who we're talking about. Just based on voice recognition. Well, if you know Max Steyer, you would have recognized Max Steyer already. On voice, yes. Yeah. But so Max Steyer. Could be my brother, though. My brother talks to I mean, I, I think all I have to say is Max Steyer. But, uh, but for those people, if, I don't know. If you're listening to the podcast at this point, you probably know what the Partnership no, for Public I'm Service is. I'm telling you, we're big in, like, Japan. And in other oh, places. really? Yes. Yes. Okay, <laughs> well. well, then, yes, Partnership for Public Service. I, I'm not even going to describe it. I'm going to let Max describe it. Well, Max is the He's, head of, executive director, which... Uh, you know what? Whatever you want to call it. President, Uban, CEO, whatever the, uh, the, the emperor. Title, like, like, I'm going to go with chief, emperor. Chief cook and bottle washer. <laughs> chief, that's of the like, Partnership like, for Public like Service, which is, in my opinion, one of the most important and noble organizations um, in, inside the Beltway and, and, and part of this whole government apparatus. So, Max, why don't you tell us? We're going to get into the Sammy's Service for America Awards, uh, but we figured we'd start with just the partnership in general. Excellent. So, uh, you know, inside the Beltway, I hope we can do better than that. Because uh, yeah. truth is that, um, you know, we're, we're a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization trying to make our government work better. Yeah. And you look at the nonprofit kingdom out there, and there are literally millions of nonprofits focused on any issue you can think of, from national security to children, environment, everything. And the reality is that the federal government is likely to be the 800-pound gorilla in each of those areas. And so our theory of the case is you make the government better at doing all those things, that's the highest leverage investment you can possibly make. And interestingly, unlike the you know, thousands and thousands of other nonprofits in every single area, we're it. Um, there really isn't a focus on the management of our government. People like to deal with government around their policy preferences and they don't really give a lot of thought to what happens after the policy is resolved. And that doesn't get you very far, as we know from many, many other examples, healthcare.gov being the sort of preeminent recent one. Well, that's essentially the premise of the Gov Actually podcast, isn't it? You know, that the, the policy, the politics, the people, um, particularly at the top level, they're interesting, um, but it's really the implementation that, uh, that really determines whether you're going to get an outcome or not. Yep. And that's, that's, that's what we're trying to do. That's what we're trying to do. And we're doing it with uh, help from amazing people like the two of you. So the, appreciate uh, both your public service for the government, but also your generosity in helping the partnership do what we're trying to do. And so give us a sense of kind of some of what are the big, big activities that the partnership engages in. And then include the Sammies in that. And then we'll do, and then we'll, and go, we'll go there. Yeah. Okay. So I won't start with the Sammies there. Yeah. But uh, you know, look, we are focused on people as being the primary element of uh, impact, and we uh, work on trying to bring good talent into government. We have a, a network of universities called the Call to Serve, which is over a thousand universities that we try to assist in understanding how to get top talent into government. Amongst other things, uh, we believe that leadership is the primary lever for impact, and so we do a lot of leadership development work. We train and develop over 5,000 executives a year at the career side, but we're also helping political teams uh, as teams and also individuals on board effectively. Um, we think that you need people, but you also need uh, the right kinds of performance measurement systems in place. And so we do things like the best places to work rankings where we helped get a law passed that requires every agency to conduct an annual employee survey. We think employee views are highly correlated to actual performance and in an environment where you don't have financial metrics even more important. So 
providing that as a common metric across government is critical. We're working on something similar on the customer experience side that we hope to be able to do as well. By the way, that employee viewpoint survey is, is somewhat transformational when you think about it because prior to it, there wasn't a common framework. And now every agency in government can kind of compare and contrast to each other. Yes. And it's apples to apples. Yes. And it's real-time performance information. And I think you're right. I think if you asked any cabinet secretary where they are in our ranking, they would know. And they're paying attention to management in a way they didn't previously. I mean, I think one of the root causes of dysfunction in government is short-term leaders that don't align against the long-term needs of their organizations uh, and the lack of real-time performance information so that those short-term leaders can hide from the impact that they have on the organizations they run. Because by and large, the bad things happen after they left right. uh, when the, the uh, disinvestment so strategy. average so tenure of a political appointee is somewhere over the two to three years? Something. I mean, again, that data it always gets you know yeah. a little bit messy. But the long, long and short of it is not long enough for them to actually typically care about what happens uh, next and and they the don't five year frame yeah right yeah. so I mean look again at GAO or whatever we got a 15 year term I think that you see a different investment by the leadership in Definitely. people and development etc so absolutely so that's another area we're focused on we're also focused on the systems of the rules that govern how the government operates so we have a pretty active advocacy effort on the hill and gotten about 36 pieces of legislation done um, and we've also focused on other high leverage items that cross a, a cut across the board, like the presidential transition. Uh, again, one of the disruptors for government is part of our democratic process, elections, but it also means that all that whole leadership cohort turns over. Uh, and it's been a Groundhog Day exercise, so our goal is how do you create a learning system around transitions. You've been, then, you've been very influential in that area, though. I mean, the work around the Presidential Transition Act. And, yeah, and you know, it's been fun, that one, because mm -hmm. it's one of those examples where you kind of think about, like, how is it that no one ever focused on this before because it's so vital and important? And you can begin to understand why as you get deeper in the process. Um, at some level, we've been influential, but I would prefer the influence to actually see a really effective presidential transition, which we have not yet seen. So I think that it is true that there is now literally a field of focus that had not existed previously goal now is results for my end so I want, I want more yeah but, I, but I, I can tell you I mean I, I having been involved with you on uh, some part of this journey the the delta between what was available um, around presidential transition information history even the willingness to discuss certainly no willingness to meet across right. party lines and you've created a, a an environment in which that that dialogue happens. Well, you're, you, you are kind, and I, I will not argue with you uh, further on the point. Um, and, and I think there's more coming. I mean, I'm excited right. by all kinds of things that we have in the hopper, uh, including, you know, we've got a, the first ever guidebook. We'll have version 2.0, but we're actually doing a guidebook for the agencies. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we're working with Boston Consulting Group on, and it's something that I think is it's a real contribution. Why are you going to plug it, yeah. for Danny in there? <laughs> no, thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I even said the full name, so just in case. Okay. So you asked me to get to something that I'm most, you know, I'm very excited by, which is the Service to America medals. And I will say right. it's the Samuel J. Heyman Service to America medals. Right. It's the only thing that we do that's named after our founder, that's a whole uh, he, amazing guy and another story, and I have no idea how much time you have, so I won't go into that other than to say that one of our core recognitions is uh, that no organization gets better if all you do is kick it. And the reality is you have to create an upside, and people talk a lot about risk aversion in government. Truth is that there's good reasons for that risk aversion, 
there's a lot of bad things that happen. Uh, if you do something wrong, there's certainly a lot of investment in finding things that are going wrong, whether it's IGs or GAO uh, or Congress more generally, how they focus, or the press, and remarkably little focus on what's happening that's right. And so we, um, when we first started, as one of our very first programs, may even been our first program, we um, did some looking at the terrain and noticed that to the extent there was any significant recognition was around government programs and people didn't really much think about government programs uh, or pay a lot of attention to them, but people they, they care about. And so our view was let's design an award program that focuses on the people that are doing extraordinary things. And uh, from the get-go, it's been a wonderful journey at one level, and I'll explain that as, as I think about it, there's also some real issues that it highlights. And so stepping back for a moment on the data, I said, you know, no organization gets better if all you do is kick it. The reality is if you look at the data, if you look at the employee viewpoint survey, what it shows is that you've got some 46% of federal employees that will say that their good work is recognized. So under half, and if you benchmark that to, Danny, your really important point that you gotta create some kind of connectivity to the larger talent market, something that, you know, Dan worked on at, at GSA in a really neat way, um, it's 68% in a sort of comparable group in the private sector. That's a big delta. I mean, that's a, you know, that's a, that's, that's a huge delta. And it's a problem because I don't believe we will get what we want from our government at the scale we want it unless the people inside feel that their work is recognized and rewarded. And rewarded uh, is, is not necessarily financially, and in fact, doesn't have to be at all financially. Um, but that's the, that's the real point behind the SAMIs. When we started it, we thought we were designing a program to tell the story of government success to the public. And what we've learned over time is that our first audience actually ought to be the government itself. And this comes back to the notion of creating a recognition culture in government. And that is that I don't believe we will persuade the public, and I may be going too far in, 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 in what you want from me right now, about um, the importance of good government and the good things that are happening in government if the workforce inside government itself doesn't know about it and believe it. You know, there are two million civil servants, there are some 16 million, uh, when you count state and local government employees, and they're not aware of the great things that their colleagues are doing. And if we're going to change public attitudes, my view is that's your, you know, your Archimedes point. That's the leverage point to be able to share with everybody else. So um, we are organizationally thinking about what more can we do to create that recognition culture uh, in the government, we're trying to see SAMEs as a tool to that end rather than the end itself. But that's, you know, we can go in any direction you want from here. Well, and, and it's hard for people to understand if they've never been to a SAMEs award how, how special it is. First of all, the, the partnership does a great job making it uh, an amazing evening. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's well produced. Um, and uh, but but most and and you know it's it's in a beautiful location, it's well coordinated. It's you know it's it's a real professional event. But but way beyond that, there's kind of an emotional undercurrent to the evening that is very powerful, and that revolves around the stories that are told about impact. And almost always, the impact is on people. Yep. And that's what makes it so powerful. Yes. Yes. I mean, we get tons and tons of nominations about amazing people that are working really hard for a long period of time. And that's not enough to, to, to win a Sammy's, yeah, or to, when I say win, to be an honoree at all. 
you have to have done something. You have to have actually made lives better for the public. And uh, that's, that's the defining characteristic for why these people are special. And you're right, the emotional impact is, is profound in my view because the stories are incredible because the people are incredible. Because not only do they, not only have they done something really meaningful, but they are also the most humble human beings. On yes, the yes, it's, so it really yeah, everyone, it's, it's this, this weird knack, it's like a, it's like, it's expected and both unexpected at the same time because you get up there and, and, and these are incredibly talented, highly educated people that are, you know, and, and they are so humble. Yes. Uh, uh, so one thing we don't script is we never script their, their, what they, they say themselves, and inevitably it's the best. <laughs> right. Yeah. One of the things I also love is there's a finalist event that both of you have been to on the Hill that we mm -hmm. do during Public Service Recognition Week. In some ways, I like it almost better than the gala because you get, you know, this time 26 stories rather than seven or eight, and you see the whole breath. And you but don't have to wear a tux. You don't have to wear a tux, which people don't like. But I will say this, which yeah. is in general, <laughs> tuxedos make no sense. But the whole point is what Danny had said earlier is right. how to make them feel special. Yep. And I've heard again and again and again from the folks that they say, we feel like Cinderella and the carriage has come. Mm -hmm. So we got to give them the carriage. Like, you know, like it's in, like, I would be upset if yeah, yeah. the tuxedos went away. Yes. Right. And I, I, I yeah. tell everyone. Because to, yeah. not because I like putting my tuxedo on, but for the very reason you just said, it yeah. adds to the. The, the th I don't know what's the, the vibe yes. of the evening, which is is be special because people are going that extra mile to 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 dress up to they the nines. They never get yeah. this otherwise. Yeah, yeah. They, they don't have this opportunity ever to be honored in this way, and I think that is a fundamental aspect of it. But the finalist breakfast, what I think is stunning, is all of the the the, the finalists sit around, and as they're hearing the stories, they're all saying, wow, that's amazing, that's incredible, yes. and I'll never win. No way, that's amazing, oh my God. And, and you're looking at them going, but, but, but you did that. I'm like, wow, you. And they, it's always the other people in there. And it's, 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 it's so fun to hear yeah. that. We've done this now 16 years, and I will say this, wow. like the first year we did this, I was like jaw dropped. I had see, I'd read the stories multiple times, but I was just still amazed, like in tears, just incredible. Me and too. I was like, oh my God, we're done. We've just, we've just we, done the greatest hits of the, you know, the federal government. The entire government. Yeah. Never and gonna get there again. Never again, we've hit the high point and we're in year one. And then year two rolls along, you're like, oh, wow, this is amazing. These are another set of incredibilities. And now we're at 16 and now I finally have gotten to the point where I'm not worried about getting great stories. Uh, it, it, they differ. I mean, sometimes you find more of them, like we, you know, in the young people's category or whatever else it might be. But truth is that um, that that this is a the gift that keeps on giving. I will say, if we don't tend our government, I'm not so sure that that gift will keep on giving. And and as many nominations as we get, and we get upwards of 500 of them, it's still the case that I know we're scratching the surface, and that there's way more out there than we're just not even aware of, um, because. You know, we know that lots of agencies don't don't have their their uh, you know that many nominations. Do you have a favorite? Yeah, favorite moment. Favorite moment. I or have favorite, a favorite yeah. moment. Yeah, I have so many, but in general, yeah, I I, I remember. I think it was year one, or maybe it was the 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 do not call list mm. um, uh, uh, was one of the one of the nominees, and then and the, and the, the woman got a standing ovation. I mean, like the whole yeah, yeah right, right. <laughs> that really, like, like that, that really made life better. It did, it did. There was a we very concrete aspect. Yes, way, yes. Eileen Harrington, she's amazing. Yes, on an email and everything else like that. Right. 
but but I, I don't think that there's any way to there's so many amazing stories that yeah. are hard to beat. I mean, was it like a year two years ago when the one of our honorees was the you know, the father of immunotherapy mm. and he was one of our first honorees in the Federal Employee of the Year. And then again, just by the the, the reach of these people, the last honoree um, got up, did some amazing thing and, and got up and said, And by the way, I wanna thank the gentleman who did immunotherapy for saving my life too uh, i was like it was just wow. like you're like oh my god yeah. you know how, how do you beat that that's just uh, incredible um but you get these moments again and again and again and it's amazing yeah i think my I th it's hard to pick one you're right I, yeah. I have like a couple that and it's always about emotion with me and i yeah. think there was you'll probably remember this but i don't know what year it was but there was an, a winner who won for um Kind of innovative physical therapy treatments for wounded soldiers coming back from, yes, from the front. And so he comes out there and he's accepting his award. And then behind him, you had a semicircle of wounded warriors, yeah. like behind him giving a standing ovation. Yeah. There wasn't a dry eye yeah. in that. It was, it was incredible. Yeah. And that's kind of, you know, because it's like, it's like a double uh, whammy moment for the audience. It's this guy's, you know, impacting people's lives right the, the, the like the type of thing you want to have happen right. and then you've got these wounded warriors who you also feel so thankful right. for for their service right. and all kind of wrapped up in one moment this is when i say there's kind of an emotion to the evening that is really hard to describe because people are like oh it's another uh, award ceremony oh and it's for government employees and you know, there's, there's, in my opinion, a little bit too much cynicism out there. And, right. and I always have this feeling like, if you could just go to the event, yep. it would really change the way you viewed government. I, I agree. I, I, we would love to figure out a way to share, you know, these stories with a broader set of the public, which is why I come back to this idea of how do we get federal employees themselves to know about this and, and use their networks to get these stories out. Well, well, there is the massive army of GovActually listeners. Um, <laughs> if they uh, if they wanted yes. to go and uh, learn more about the Partnership for Public Service, about the Samuel J. Heyman um, uh, awards, uh, about prior Sammies, how would Service they do to that? org, and there's a wonderful website where you can you see a sea of faces, which are the sea of Sammies honorees and you can get each and every one of their stories. There are short videos for all the prior winners that are on the site, and it's an amazing tour of the um, impact of our government and what it's done for us. So uh, that's the where I would go for the partnership more generally. It's our OURpublicservice.org. You know, obviously, anyone can just Google us and they'd find it. Um, but uh, you know, I think you know if people made a commitment to share a story with a friend. Uh, and we saw that happen again and again. We would wind up with, I think, a different appreciation for, you know, what we get when we get when we have government as it needs to be and should be, and what's possible. And you know, lots of folks have grumbles about government, and that's it's our government. That's perfectly appropriate to want more from it. But I think the question then it comes to you, which is, what are you going to do to get there? And, and again, my view is complaining uh, is not going to do it. Um, and there's lots of ways to actually make it better. So I, I think I have this idea that uh, the partnership should do this thing where you start a petition to have the president, the speaker of the house, and the Senate majority leader all uh, 
come to the Sammies for the like? Can, can we start a petition on like uh, on something like that? I'd be all for it. I mean, you go ahead uh, okay. and go for it. <laughs> I mean, we do everything we can. I'm a big like you know surround person, which is like try everything you possibly can. You know, we're we're Amy, uh, her colleague Jim Seymour. Um, they're 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 a two person army on this, and they've got lots of other uh, responsibilities. It's tough. I mean, so. Uh, Yes, I mean, it's striking to me that the President of the United States has never come. We've had, and we, we will... I thought George uh, Bush 43 came nope, once. I've never, never, never that. we've had, you know... Chiefs of Staff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, White House Chiefs yeah. of Staff have come a bunch, right. and we typically have a pretty good representation of the Cabinet, and, and then some. Yeah, absolutely. And this year, we have a great lineup already of, like, a lot of media folk that are coming. We have John Dickerson, who is phenomenal it's going to be the the MC for the evening oh, wow. but Great. i mean you know lots and lots and lots of uh, interesting people will be there but i agree i mean at the end of the day the president of the united states uh, leads our government and this is something that they ought to not just you know show up for the evening for but they ought to be committed to trying to encourage the best uh, from government and this is one way to do that and i would argue and the speaker of the house and i the, totally agree and head of the senate because yeah. every important issue that they're tackling and grappling yep. with behind it there's a government that needs to implement it effectively yes and again you can argue and we do as a nation and as a yep. community about pu public policy this way or that way but the one thing that's constant no matter where it lands if it lands where exactly where mitch mcconnell wants it or exactly where chuck schumer wants yep. it in both situations, there's a government behind that that's going to have to implement it effectively. Entirely agreed. And we get a smattering of, of members that come uh, consistently, and it crosses the ideological spectrum. And I think, as you just said earlier, anyone who's in that room, um, hard-pressed for them not to walk away saying, wow, yeah. and, and, and this is something we need to invest in. Uh, and getting there, though, getting the right people in the room, getting that room uh, spread out to a broader audience is part of the challenge that we have in front of us. And Truth is that we won't be able to do it successfully alone. So we need as many allies as we possibly can, uh, and we're doing our best. We live stream the uh, the event now. And, yeah, uh, um, Twitter's it, become you know. Yeah, we do. We do. We we're we're willing to try anything. Yeah. So uh, you know we're we're. You were encouraging uh, people last year to live tweet. Live tweet the event. Talking yeah. to all kinds of media outlets about what they might or might not be willing to do, um, but. You know, it's it's a it's a constant battle, and uh, we need the help. So, thank Great. you for 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 doing what you're doing here, yeah. and for spreading the word, and for focusing on an area that doesn't get nearly enough attention. Well, Absolutely. Thanks for what you do at the Partnership for Public Service. I think it's so important, so valuable, and and it's fun and interesting too. Well, see you on September 27th. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Thanks. See you, Max. Thanks. Gov Actually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop, as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. GovActually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. And Seamless Docs, the fastest, easiest way to move all your administrative data collection processes to the cloud. Seamless Docs helps make government beautiful. All right, this is one of our first uh, Sammy's finalist interviews. Uh, Danny, we have a couple of really, really interesting, exciting people here today. Yes, so Courtney Elias and Stacy Beck from the Food and Drug Administration are here. Um, and I think what we'll do is we'll just start with Stacy. Uh, 
um, tell us about the what brought you here. Like, what was the project that you're working on? And we want to get into that a little bit to understand the uh, the work that you're doing. Sure. Um, I work at the Food and Drug Administration, and we work on um, what is called the artificial pancreas or automated insulin delivery systems. And these are systems that are um, insulin pumps that uh, deliver insulin based on what a person's actual glucose levels are. So you have a sensor that is reading somebody's glucose levels and relaying that information to an algorithm, which then can attenuate how much insulin to give or increase is, or stop. So it's surgically implanted? It's or? not surgically okay. implanted, so it just gets inserted um, just slight in the subcutaneous place, just right under the skin. Okay. And it like kind of sits in a little pocket there. Sounds surgical. Me too. It sounds, it surgical. sounds like yeah. It sounds <laughs> like it would hurt, but okay. <laughs> not too bad. Um, but it it just kind of sits there and can read um, the glucose in the interstitial fluid. So um, this can then tell this algorithm that um, to either increase or decrease uh, the insulin delivery, and then the pump can it relays that to the pump, and the pump can do that to help keep a person who has diabetes um, glucose levels in what they call it, like a, a normal range. So what's the what's the the protocol before this how do you how do you sure. measure manage your, your insulin levels so people do a lot of different things so um, people with uh, type 1 diabetes have to uh, measure their glucose levels and know you know if they're going high or low and based on that um, either eat food or um, give themselves insulin so they can do that through sort of a non-technical way where they just measure you know do a finger stick uh, and measure their glucose levels and then give them a sh give themselves a shot um, or they can have a pump that does kind of get, uh, deliver insulin, but it doesn't uh, change the amount of insulin. So it's um, the same so that's amount. The smart, that's yeah. kind of the smart part of it. So it can right. do that for the person instead of them having to make the decisions for themselves. So why does, why does the Food and Drug Administration, why do they pick this kind of thing to work on? How, what's the process for choosing something like yeah. this? I mean, I think a lot of people would say, well, aren't there big companies out there who do this right. kind of stuff? So we um, we are the regulatory agency, mm -hmm. right? So um, we regulate medical devices, and these types of devices are within our purview of things mm -hmm. that we have to regulate. So companies and academic investigators and um, different sort of research groups are the ones who do the research on the device and create the device. Um, and we just kind of worked with the companies and the research investigators to help them to design their studies to um, ensure that they get the information that they need to to ensure that we could approve it when it came up to us to be um, to go onto the market. So we didn't actually do the research for it. They yeah, so you're su supporting the development of this technology. Uh, creating a market then for it. Exactly. So we um, we worked, so, you know, there was sort of this idea um, out in the community that this um, kind of device the FDA would never allow to go out there because it's really doing the thinking for the person. So um, they go to bed at night and the, um, the algorithm works for them. They don't have to wake up and do things uh, unless they need to. It'll alert them if they need to. But um, so I think there was this sort of thought that FDA would never allow this kind of thing. It's this sort of smart technology. And um, we really uh, made a point to go out and to talk to, um, like I said, the investigators, the, the um, companies, and try to really say, look, we think that this kind of device could save people's lives. We want this to get out there, and we want to help you to do that and at least decrease whatever we can from the regulatory burden to help make that happen. So this, is, this could be 
project number one in a whole direction for the FDA and regulation and industry. So, yeah, I think we are trying to um, be a little bit more innovative and uh, proactive in working with companies and um, academic institutions and things to help get devices that are important to people who need them. Yes, and one of the things that when I was reading the background on the award and the description, there was a little bit of a kind of an undertone of, you know, there's a sense that sometimes the government is difficult to work with, and it's it's overly bureaucratic. And I've never heard that. And but there's 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 this need for the government to have this review of safe safety of different things, and um, and so here you have a situation where I think Courtney and Stacy, your work basically symbolizes like let's open the government up differently to people to engage with them and partner with them in a way that it's not seen as just some scary bureaucracy that uh, is either frustrating or even worse disincentivizes uh, creativity and innovation because the thought is you'll never get it through government. Let's change that, that interface and make it much more um, positive and constructive and good things will happen. So is that, is that a fair way of describing it, Courtney? Um, yes, I think that's a, a really good way to do it. I, one thing I've learned uh, over the years on working to try to help new technologies come forward is that a lot of people, both regulators like us and people in industry, make assumptions. They make assumptions in industry about what FDA would accept, like Stacy referred to earlier. And in government, sometimes we make assumptions about what a company or a patient might want. And so really breaking down the walls between the patient community, the industry, and the FDA to make sure that communication is clear, even if our roles are distinct. If communication is clear, those assumptions, getting rid of assumptions that are incorrect can really facilitate these things. And I'll give you an example. If a company moves forward and thinks, like Stacey referred to, that we would never accept a certain type of product, they may take really slow incremental steps in order to get there. Whereas if we can just sit together in a room and say, no, we think that's fine. Why don't you skip those steps and go really to the thing that'll help patients then we can save a lot of time and money because each of those steps costs time and money. And so really part of the proactive steps that we tried to take were, um, were breaking down those walls, making sure we really just sat down together and say, wait, what do you have and do we understand it? And what are the challenges you face? What are the things that we absolutely need? What are the things maybe we don't need? And how can we save some time? Um, and make this an efficient process. And that's not usually what happens. Yeah, I was gonna ask, what is the, you know, I think the reputation that I uh, articulated before about the government feeling overly bureaucratic and not having reasonable, reasonably clear access points. Um, what, what are some of the things that, that you did to try to let people know, like, hey, over here, we're, we're available and, you don't necessarily have to bring your lawyers with you, and you don't necessarily um, have to fill out this form in triplicate in order to in order to get in the door and talk to us. Well, maybe I'll start with the companies, and then I'll pass it over to Stacy to talk about the patients, because we really had to go at this mm. from two different angles. So for the companies, um, you know, one thing we really had to do was really break down that wall. What normally happens when we regulate a product is the company works on their side, and they sort of make these assumptions, and they. They decide you know, on their own product development, they do their thing, and then they kind of throw it over the wall to FDA, and then FDA starts. And so at that point, we get a product in our, you know, in our sort of workload. We have to understand what they've done, how they've done it, and sometimes that 
requires going back and talking to them, maybe even asking them to do different things because they did something that maybe we didn't think was the right thing to do, et cetera. And so that type of just back and forth, tossing the tennis ball back and forth over the net can also extend things. And so this time we tried to reduce that by having these conversations up front. We understood what they were going to do. Um, and this applies to companies that were sort of marketing the product that ended up on the market, but also investigators out in the field who are also making these products. And when you say up front, is that potentially earlier? Earlier, early in, in their cycle, development? Before they even started the, the oh, wow. project. And we, we sat together and we learned about what options they had with respect to hardware. We um, talked about, you know, trial designs. We, you know, talked through things that might come up, including manufacturing issues and software issues as soon as they came up, et cetera. And with investigate, academic investigators, we developed relationships with them and sat down in a room and made sure their trials could go smoothly and that they could move forward through the process quickly um, because they knew that they could call us up and, and talk to us about it. And that's really relevant, too, to learn about the patient side. And I'll toss this back over to Stacy because I think our developing those relationships was equally important. Well, I think, yeah, to your point, before Stacy jumps in, that the process is incredibly important, the stakeholders are incredibly important, but ultimately it's about the outcomes and really helping individuals. Exactly. So this kind of device, um, you know, unfortunately has risks. So um, most medical devices have some level of risk. And so I think there was an idea that, you know, FDA is very risk averse and they don't want to have anything on the market that could have risk. Um, but what we wanted to do was kind of talk to patients who have diabetes or they have family members or children with diabetes and talk to them about the risks that they already have every day. So, um, you know, parents are having to wake up, you know, multiple times a night to go and check on their um, children's blood glucose levels. They're not getting any sleep because they're so worried that something is going to happen. Um, you know, uh, they can be out somewhere and their blood sugar go low and they don't have um, access to orange juice or glucose or something to raise it up and things like that. So what we did is we really reached out to the community and talked to a lot of the different um, people that are living with this um, disease every day and uh, about the risk that they were willing to take. And so uh, understanding that, you know, even if this device increased some risks in other areas, it might decrease them in, in other ways. So letting them, uh, letting parents be able to sleep through the night and not have to worry as much. I mean, it doesn't take everything away, but it uh, gives another layer of protection. And so I think understanding that helped us to say, okay, it helped us to feel a lot more comfortable with the type of device and um, move the studies, the clinical studies forward a little quicker. So, um, you know, they were starting out in these inpatient settings and then um, slowly starting to go to um, less and less um, uh, you know, having people around to protect, the, you know, make sure if something bad happened to the people. Um, but, you know, kind of understanding, like, we can just go, like, why not let's just get out into the real world? Because when you're in these inpatient settings, it's not really um, how it's going to work or how people are going to live their life daily. So I think that helped a lot, too, is just understanding that people were willing to go and, and uh, use the device. What's the what's the process for finding some of those folks to participate? Is it is it industry? Is it academia? Is we're, it we've been really lucky. We have a couple of ways. Um, we work with a group called the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, or mm -hmm. uh, JDRF, and they are um, a very large patient advocacy organization who uh, has 
uh, helped us to be able to connect with a lot of different patients, which is really great. Um, they uh, sometimes bring them in or help us to uh, call and, and talk to them. Um, we've gone out to meeting this, um, with the type 1 diabetes community is a very um, vocal and active community. So they've actually invited us to come to different meetings and give talks to kind of also help explain to them uh, and their, uh, their constituents what uh, FDA does and to better understand the regulatory um, things that go into their devices and so they can understand you know what we've done to make sure that their devices are safe and effective um, so we've gotten to go do that and then at those different meetings we've gotten to reach out and meet different people and then it's really funny but a lot of times people just call me up like I will uh, just I don't even know they how they <laughs> managed to find my name but I'll answer my phone and you know I've had you know some 70 year old lady whose husband has diabetes or a you know parent and things like that and so we get to talk to them that way too and uh, we really just try to make a point to actually talk to them and then say you know if you have questions or anything you know call me back I, I want to hear from you so when you got into government did you did you ever dream that people would be calling you out of the blue to ask I did you not about? but I actually I think that's my favorite part about um, working here is that um, I am able to do those kinds of things which I, I didn't know that that was going to be possible I also like that people are often surprised to hear yeah. that there's a real person on the end of the line right right who knows something about their problem or at least cares about it and you know wants to try to help them and you know, it makes you feel good if you're that person. Yeah, I think it's actually funny because they do, they're often surprised, they sound shocked when I actually right. enter the phone I and they're like, I think anyone would actually. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, right. and sometimes they call and they're, they're upset. Yes. And then when I actually answer and start talking to them, they, you know, they kind of change from being upset to being, right. oh, you know, like understanding things a little bit. I more. think you can, as a, as a government worker, you can often surprise people mm -hmm. just because of their perceptions um, that are, you know, and I don't, I don't know where it comes from, but... Um, but yeah, I mean, the, there's there's an accessibility there. There's a, a willingness to want to help. There's an excitement and a passion that the government workforce has about the things they're doing. And just sitting across from you both, it's it's clear that that you're um, passionate and thrilled to be able to have this this opportunity, not just to win the award or or be a finalist, but to do the work is the real reward. So uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Like, so imagine. Like there's a 10th grade civics class out there listening to this and we're trying to plant seeds in terms of thinking about careers in public service. Like how, and they're excited about the fact that they can help people. How, how did you, what's your journey like in terms of your background? Start with Courtney. Um, so I, I'm, I went through school and, and was educated as a scientist in okay. biology and biochemistry. And I ended up getting a PhD um, in biochemistry, molecular biology. Um, and I liked science. I really liked thinking through the problems. Um, but I also really like more applied applications to it. So when I heard about the FDA, I was living in, um, I went to Hopkins, so I was sort of in the area. And um, heard about FDA and the jobs there. I went to a talk and I thought, this is exactly up my alley. This is a way to apply science and still be able to, to sort of um, see the fruits of my labors, to be able to actually create a product or, or you know, have some impact in, in healthcare. Yeah. In relatively short time frames and, and be able to learn a lot about those things. And so I actually started at FDA as a reviewer where I would sort of review the files and enjoyed the intersection between science and law, which is an uneasy intersection. Um, for those of you who practice science in the government, it can be uneasy because law is based on sort of words, whereas science is based on logic and, and you know, learning how to navigate 
uh, doing good science. You may in have offended of a bunch of lawyers. Anyway, the lawyers can get over it. Yeah. But there are ways that you can legally do what you need to do that scientifically makes sense within the law and within the regulations. And really trying to understand how to navigate that path to do the things that are right for patients has been very interesting. Um, I'll say before Stacy goes, the the types of backgrounds in our group vary a little bit. So if you have people who aren't biologists or biochemists who want to do this sort of thing, we also have engineers. Mm -hmm. Um, we also have people who work in clinical laboratories who do testing and laboratory sciences. Um, we have people in, with chemistry and physics backgrounds. Um, and so a lot of different sciences can go into sort of doing some of these types of applications. You even have a really quiet public affairs person sitting behind yeah. you. Right? We do. We have public <laughs> affairs and media, and they help us a lot. So. <laughs> Um, I have a slightly different background. So I actually am from Texas, and I was a chemical engineering major in undergrad. And I worked um, at a refinery um, out in uh, East Texas um, near the uh, coast. And it was, you know, 110 degree weather, and I had to wear full fire retardant Nomex and steel toe boots and a hard hat. So today feels really yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm surprised you're not wearing the same thing. <laughs> yeah, why? Why? Really hot out. Um, and uh, while I really enjoyed solving problems, I did not think that that was what I wanted to do for my um, life. So I kind of was looking at what else could I learn, and I was always interested in um, sort of health and medicine and things. So then I ended up going to graduate school in uh, med medical studies, so biomedical sciences. And then I did research, and I really enjoyed that, but you know, it was um, looking at cells and trying to see if these things can, um, these cell studies would uh, help prevent um, colon cancer in the future, and I didn't really see the connection between what I was doing at the bench and actual um, helping people with uh, colon cancer. So I ended up um, doing a postdoc in bioengineering and doing a little bit more um, uh, research that would help to uh, create products. So there I worked on creating wound healing bandages. And so that was really interesting, but as I was doing it, I was taking, you know, it would take us six to eight weeks to make each and every one of these bandages, and I was kind of thinking to myself, you know, it was very labor-intensive. How on earth would you ever do this to actually be a product for people? So um, I started kind of looking into FDA and trying to understand how, how it worked, and it just so happened that the day I was looking on the website, they announced this um, commissioner's fellowship. And so they had, uh, you know, an advertisement like, come learn about the FDA. And so I looked at it, and all I had to do was send my resume, and I said, okay, why not? So um, I did, and then I um, got selected to be a part of the fellowship. So I had three weeks to move from Northern California to, um, uh, you know, Washington, D.C., and just said, okay, might as well try it, and came here. And, and how many years ago was that? That was almost nine years ago now. Okay. So it was a two-year fellowship, and I thought for sure I was going to be moving back to Northern California. <laughs> and somehow and I'm still like here. Today, we tricked her. Yeah, here. exactly. Yeah, I've like, heard that story a million I times. I ask myself a yeah. lot of times, the time, yeah. like, why couldn't they move to FDA to California? A lot of people get yeah. stuck here in D.C., but for good, for good reason. Yeah. But yeah, and I just really um, found it to be interesting, and I really enjoyed getting to be able to actually um, do something that I could see the impact on people. And I learn things every day. I've been at FDA now for 14 years, and I still learn something every single day, um, and some days a lot. And it can be science things, it can be policy things, it can be people things. Um, there are a lot of things, and, and you know, so far I haven't reached the point where I've stopped you know, learning and expanding the things that I'm exposed uh, to. So we're, we're so fortunate to have you as, uh, as public servants uh, helping us all improve quality of life and saving lives. Uh, yeah, just listening to your backgrounds and your journeys, it's just, 
you know, it's just a reminder that it's a reminder of two things. Is one that in the government today there are extraordinarily talented, qualified people that put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into their education and their development, and they came to the government to serve. But it also is a reminder that we need more people, right. like like Courtney and Stacy, in government in order to make this all work. Because what? 10, 15, 20 years from now, there's going to be other medical advances, and we don't want FDA to fall into any kind of to, to backtrack in terms of how they're working with industry to make sure that these medical devices, the ones that should be, are pushing through quickly to get to patients and start improving people's lives. Well, what I, what I love about your stories is both the tremendous competence that you bring to your work, but also this idea that you want to have innovation and push forward and, and overcome these perceptions of um, the fact that, that FDA is anyway in the way of progress, that actually you're committed to uh, accelerating it. So I wish you guys the best of luck with the, uh, with the Sammies. I know you're my first interview, but already you're my favorite. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a, that, yeah. That makes it easy. <laughs> and congratulations again. So before we go, one of, the, one of the interesting questions to ask is, beyond the work that you're doing, we'd imagine that this is scalable and has potential impact for other things that FDA is having for other types of patients, other types of diseases and sicknesses and, and medical devices. So can you talk a little bit about more broadly within FDA, how this, is cha how this could be changing outcomes for the better? Yeah, I think this is applicable to any type of product. If you really think about what are the unmet needs and how can FDA work with um, sort of promising projects to do the same thing, not, not stand in the way, be proactive about um, making pathways as clear as possible, being open to good ideas. Uh, our center has put forward some, um, some practices that are fairly new where we have pathways that sort of really think about the balance of information we need before something goes on the market and after it goes on the market, such that can we have enough confidence to say it's safe and effective and maybe get a little bit more assurance in the post-market phase if patients are willing to accept that risk. And so that can be applied broadly. We applied it here, and we always look for ways to apply it elsewhere. And I think having um, these pathways that are a little more formalized are helpful, but I think that a big part of what has been really helpful is having just this paradigm shift to thinking of ourselves as partners with industry to help um, and, and academia to help get these kinds of devices to the patient. So, you know, when we have to be tough on industry, we'll be tough on industry. But when we see things that really will be helpful for patients, we really want to work with them. You know, when we, when we, when we do the podcast, I always try to remind people um, about the importance that government plays. And even if you're a small government advocate, there are still things that as, as a human being or as a parent um, of children, you're like, no, I, I want the government there doing certain things like air safety, like air traffic controllers, you know. Yeah. The, FDA. Or, yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm, as a parent, I'm sitting here thinking, there's two things that I would want going on to protect my children going forward. One is that really impactful medical solutions and devices are not staying dormant, but are hitting in case my child needs one, but also that it's safe and that it's, it's been tested and that someone really smart, like a PhD from Johns Hopkins or someone who got their postdoc in medical engineering is thinking through what are the right questions and tests we need to apply on these devices so that when I'm in the doctor and the doctor says, here's what your son or daughter should be using, that I can have comfort knowing that someone 
very intelligent and thoughtful has looked at it and made sure from the government that this is good to go. And it's not just there because someone's trying to make money. It's there because someone is maybe trying to make money and advance health care, but the government is there to make sure that it's also safe. It's almost like you know our mission. It's to protect <laughs> and promote the public health. There you go. Nice. That's what we try to do. It's yeah. simple and pure. Yes. Thank you. Well, thank you for being here, and congratulations again. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thanks for listening to GovActually. We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at us at GovActuallyPod, or you can write to Danny at Danny at GovActually.com, or to me at Dan at GovActually.com. And if you haven't already, subscribe to GovActually Podcast on iTunes and write a review. That's how we get pushed up further and more people can hear about us. Thanks again.